welcome to the Quipster Film Review Podcast. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you enjoy the review that you're about to hear. I do apologize for the trickle of podcasting that I've been doing on this particular show. Part of it is because, you know, life gets busy. I have a lot of family needs to take care of, especially lately. My dear mother passed away recently, and I am in the middle of taking care of a lot of that for the memorial service. And it's a, it's a great emotional time for me and for the family. So, um, so this show is dedicated to my mother, who has always supported me and my writing interests and my love of movies. And to you, Myra, I love you. The film I'm going to be reviewing today has not really nothing to do with my mother. It's not the sort of thing that, you know, if I, if I were to dedicate a show to her, I would say Coco would be definitely much higher on the agenda. But I, I did see and review that before her passing. Today I'm going to be reviewing Guillermo del Toro's latest film. It's called The Shape of Water. And it's kind of a film that defies genre. It has fantasy elements, there's thriller elements, some romance, some musical, some... I mean, you name it, it's kind of put in here. Comedy as well. It casts a very wide net, and that's almost kind of a pun here, but it's it's not meant to be. It's an R-rated film, though. It does have sexual content in here, graphic nudity, some violence. Language is also in here as well. Two hours and three minutes is the runtime. The main star is Sally Hawkins, and supporting roles, sizable supporting roles, going to Michael Shannon, Richard Jenkins, Octavia Spencer, Michael Stuhlbarg, and Doug Jones, as Doug Jones has been in, I think, Del Toro's last seven movies, at the very least. Director is, of course, Guillermo del Toro, who also provides the screenplay, along with Vanessa Taylor. Now, del Toro here is returning to his favorite playground. Once again, this is a realm where fantasy and reality coexist, even if it's ever so tenuously. And that's really the realm I think del Toro strives to achieve, to, be, to get that balance in between fantasy and reality. Although this film is worlds apart in terms of its story, The Shape of Water, I think, will remind some people of the twisted fairy tale tone and style of his arguably best film, Pan's Labyrinth. That's another period piece film that merged flights of fancy with some scenes of very dark brutality. And in those themes, Del Toro shows that the scariest of monsters lie not in our own imagination. They really actually lie within twisted men of power and desperation. This film is set in a version of 1962 Baltimore, or at least somewhere in the Washington, D.C. area. There's a top-secret government-run laboratory that exists just outside of the Capitol. Strange experiments take place there, the most prized among them just arriving when we get into this film. Into this secluded tank goes an amphibious humanoid creature. If you haven't seen the advertisements for this, this creature really looks like the creature from the Black Lagoon. Del Toro says that he was very much inspired by that classic film in terms of its story, wondering, you know, what if that creature had fallen in love with a human woman? And kind of that was the seed by which the shape of water was able to sprout forth. Part man, part fish is this creature. And the government wants to learn how it functions. They want to do so because it would push the United States with an edge against the Soviet Union who are in the space race with them and perhaps other military engagements in order to find out how this very powerful and very interesting and almost magical creature works. Top-level government brass exist on both sides of the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union. They're both keenly aware and interested in getting their hands on the amphibian 
although they see it more as a dumb animal than some sort of intelligent creature. And the creature is not worth taking the time for these government bureaucrats and powerful men to know beyond just desiring to dissect his body to understand how he works. However, there is one person that knows that there's more than meets the eye with this very magnificent creature. This creature worshipped, by the way, as a god in his native South American habitat. That person is Eliza. Eliza is a mute and lovelorn late-night janitor of the amphibians section of the facility. The creature and Eliza soon develop a friendship and then something akin, perhaps, to love with the bizarre entity and the mute woman. From there, I don't want to spoil too much. In this film, Guillermo del Toro does strive for a heightened cinematic approach with the movie overall. As you would expect from one of his films, sumptuous cinematography takes place. There's a stylish camera work. It denotes other genres that tread the line between fantasy and reality. For instance, musicals always tread that line. And I think del Toro really strove to try to capture that feeling that anything really could happen within this film, even though it's kind of grounded in this reality, this you know early 1960s aesthetic. It's really amazing when you think that the film's budget is under $20 million, what you see on the screen, because it very much feels like a very high-end production. You know, Del Toro really capitalized on being able to use the same crew, the same sets, the same equipment of the TV show that he helped co-create called The Strain on FX. This film is from Fox Searchlight, so definitely a lot of collaboration there, the, much in the way that Hitchcock was able to deliver Psycho while he was still making Alfred Hitchcock Presents. So a very astute business-related choice here, and it works really well for the film because it does feel like a very big-budget movie. The camera is also very rarely still. It flows through doors, through rooms, gives the effect of swimming, and I think that that's very apropos given the amphibious creature at the heart of it, and it, it gives you that dreamlike quality that's also at the heart of the story, especially in the ethereal score that accompanies the images from Alexander Desplat. This is a story that's layered on cinema that is literally in the film. That the story is very layered cinematically is literally in the film. Apartments that are inhabited by Eliza and Giles, her neighbor, are literally built on a grand-style movie theater that are showing a couple of now-classic epic films, to which this movie and Del Toro tried to pay homage. As I mentioned, Del Toro favorite Doug Jones is in this movie, and this is about as close as he's ever been to becoming a lead performer in a Del Toro movie, or any movie really, and he's playing this amphibious man. He gets into this remarkably lifelike suit that took, I think, three years to really get fully honed down to what you see on the screen. It's mostly practical effects, although the look, especially some of the lighting, is using CG elements in order to bring it to life. And also coming to life are the odd movements, the angular stature, the statuesque posture, and the ability to draw a sympathetic array of reactions. That's something that Doug Jones uniquely is able to present within Del Toro's films, and Del Toro really capitalizes on that. This creature doesn't utter a single word of dialogue out loud, much like the heroine of the film, Eliza, who is mute. You know, they, they're able to gain a common language of understanding between them. And the creature is able to learn a little bit of sign language based on Eliza's instruction. So for a film that explores themes of loneliness and also finding unlikely companions under the most remarkable of circumstances, I do think that the strength of this film lies in not only Doug Jones and Sally Hawkins, but also Del Toro's ability to transcend dialogue in order to form a palpable bond that we can believe amid circumstances that are set in so-called real-world situations. And if communication is the key to strong relationships, it's in the ability to communicate with the audience 
Del Toro especially here, that our relationship with his film itself holds true. Now, Del Toro is still continuing to explore specifically how the bond between Eliza and the amphibious man is strong. They're able to communicate, as I mentioned, without words in a way that seems almost effortless. Meanwhile, all of the other characters in this film that have a voice are actually very challenged to express themselves to just about anyone. You have Giles here, the gay man, the gay neighbor and friend to Eliza, who isn't sure of signals that he's getting from the employee of a local diner. If those are flirtatious or not, uh, there's Zelda, who admits that her marriage requires a lack of truthfulness and honesty and openness in order to continue. There's there's Dr. Robert Hofstetler here, played by Michael Stuhlbarg, who wants to do a very good thing, but he's caught between the desires of those with more power and his own notions of what's right. And Richard Strickland, played by Michael Shannon, whose thoughts are so inward to his own wants and needs that he's really lost all connection or caring for those around him. This is a film that really explores the difficulty of being treated as an other in society. You have this amphibian who is more of an extreme example of an outsider here finding society not willing or able to accept his differences. But the amphibian's champions can certainly relate to him because you have Eliza the mute, you have Giles the gay man, Zelda the black woman. They also are not viewed on the same plane by many members of so-called mainstream society who, in that society, they see their way of thinking as the only way things should be. So these other people are the outliers. They're the outcasts. Anything outside of mainstream thinking is viewed as suspect or dangerous due to its otherness and must be destroyed in order to understand it. Although, ironically, you can't really understand it once it's gone. It's just gone. There's another theme in this film of seeing beyond those differences to find love. And those that can't see beyond those differences succumb to a hateful form of ignorance that consumes their own healthful state of being in the process corrupted by sociopathy when empathy is what's most desired and most critical for our own ability to not destroy ourselves with our inability to connect to anyone or anything that isn't just like us. Although the film is a fantasy set over half a century ago, I do think that the issues in this film are ever more relevant in today's political discourse, especially because there's this battle that's been brewing between those who see the world as a big multicultural community of brethren and those who put themselves, their party, their race, their religion, their country above all others, seeing any request by someone who looks or thinks or believes differently as something to wage war against instead of try to live in harmony with. And the ultimate message of this film is if we choose to live in fear, we battle the monsters in ourselves, our own minds. And if taken too far, we become that monster that we've been trying so hard to avoid and to eviscerate. So bravo to Del Toro. I do think that this is a good film. I'm going to give it three and a half stars out of four. Three and a half stars on my scale means that I do think it's a good movie. If this sounds at all of interest to you, I do encourage you to go see it. This movie admittedly is not for everyone. You know, there's going to be some elements of society that are not going to readily take to the romance that brews between a woman and a fish man. You know, although they will accept Beauty and the Beast, obviously. Maybe it's the fur versus scales. I don't know. Also, there are some scenes of brutality that take it beyond a family experience. Certainly not everybody's going to like that, much like a lot of people were turned off by what happens in Pan's Labyrinth because of that sadism and brutality that sometimes is evoked there. But I do think that from a thematic perspective, it is very much necessary to be able to show where the monsters truly lie in both films. So three and a half stars goes to Guillermo del Toro's 
The Shape of Water. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I do hope that you enjoyed this review. If you want to hear more of my podcasting work, I do encourage you to seek out my 1980s podcast, Around the World in 80s Movies. You can search for that on any place where you're listening to this right now and probably find it. If you don't, let me know, and I will try to work together with that platform in order to make sure that podcast is on there. You can also find more of my podcasting work at the In Session Film Podcast, where I co-host the extra film segments of that show. So check them out there, even though of late I have not been able to be on that show. JD and Brendan are top-notch film critics and podcasters, and you're in good hands whether I'm on that show or not. You should check that out. InSessionFilm.com for more details on that. Until next time, thank you everyone for listening, and I hope that you enjoy your time anytime you get to go to the movies. 